Today is not going to be kind of your standard Christmas message, although we're going to be mentioning Christmas a lot in it. And uh, we'll get into that. Let's go to in, in our uh, Bibles, though, and uh, uh, read from God's Word. Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Abinadab, Abinadab begot uh, Nation, and Nation begot uh, Salmon. Salmon uh, begot Elvis, and Elvis be no, not really. <laughs> Just seeing if you're paying attention. <laughs> These genealogies are kind of, uh, uh, you know, Cause you to snooze a little bit. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot uh, Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah. And Abijah got, begot Asa. And skipping down to verse 15, Eliad begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Matan, Matan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Father, we come before you, and uh, we praise and thank you for the things that uh, your word teaches us. Even uh, It teaches us even through such things as the... Uh, genealogies, Lord. And a lot of times we just pass through them and don't realize exactly what they're teaching us. So, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would anoint us, uh, anoint this message, Lord, and uh, anoint uh, the speaker and also uh, the listeners too, Lord God. And may we truly profit by your uh, word. And be with us, Lord, as we uh, remember... um, This is Christmas, Lord, and we celebrate the birth of your uh, Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I ask for your blessing upon this, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we've been having a series on Christmas. The last three Sundays we've been doing this. Uh, This is going to be the final message in the series on Christmas. Uh, The first message we learned about Hanukkah you know we always talk about happy Hanukkah so a lot of people don't really know what Hanukkah is so I you know explained what it uh, was and what it means for us too remember uh, I uh, told you that it uh, uh, it indicates uh, first of all, you celebrate the rededication. Remember, Hanukkah celebrated the rededication of the Jewish temple after it had been defiled by Gentiles who had set up an idol of Zeus and then sacrificed pigs in it. So they needed to cleanse it and rededicate it. And what that means for us is we need to rededicate ourselves to the Lord during this time of Christmas, and especially as we look forward to the new year. Another thing, too, is it's called, Hanukkah is called the Festival of Lights, and that's where we celebrate Jesus Christ as the light of the world. And finally, you know, the miracle of Hanukkah is how God multiplied the uh, uh, cruise of oil that was only supposed to last three days, And it lasted eight until they had uh, uh, consecrated new oil. And that celebrates the fact that God can and does work miracles in our lives. 
second message that we did last week was, What Can I Give God This Christmas? And we learned that what we can give God this Christmas is ourselves. And we follow Psalm uh, 37, verse 5, Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. We're all further told in Proverbs uh, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. And the other thing that we give God during Christmas time is not just ourselves, but the fruit of our lips. And I mentioned uh, before that we that indicates that we need to be praising God every day, preferably as soon as we wake up. You know, as soon as we wake up, our minds should begin to focus in on the Lord and you begin to praise Him. And that's a great way right there to be committing yourselves to the Lord. This week, uh, I'm going to be talking about the twisted family tree of Jesus. Now, I'm borrowing this from a message that I heard this past uh, week uh, that was uh, uh, given by... Uh, Pastor Greg Laurie of Harvest Christian Fellowship. And I say this uh, because, you know, most, if not all of you, probably will never hear that message. And so I thought, it, you know, I listened to it, I thought it was a valuable message, and I wanted to uh, pass it on to you. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because, you know, this message is being recorded. We're going to post it on the uh, church web page. So if you're out there listening to this message on uh, uh, out there in internet land, you know, and you kind of say, well, you know, he's preaching something that Greg Laurie preached. Well, that's true, you know. Uh, but, you know, whenever, I don't normally do this either. You know, normally the messages that I uh, preach to you, I, I start from scratch and get my own material, write my own material. But when I do this, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, it's been in the news this past week about the uh, president of uh, Harvard. How many of you heard that story? You know, about uh, the uh, uh, president of Harvard and they're finding that she plagiarized a lot of the stuff that she uh, wrote for her theses. So I'm not going to be like that. You know, I'm going to give credit where credit is due. Now, I'm, I've borrowed a lot of his material and his outline, but I'm going to be adding a lot of my own insights as well. Okay, so uh, uh, anyway, um, the title of uh, Greg Glory's is A Twisted Family Tree, and I'm just extending that to a twisted family, the twisted family tree of Jesus. Now you say, well, that's blasphemy. Well, the fact is that the uh, uh, people that are in Jesus' family tree, they were imperfect people. How many of you know that? There's only one person, perfect person that's ever lived, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You know, these days you hear a lot about dysfunctional families. How many of you ever heard that term? <laughs> dysfunctional families, you know. I've been hearing about it since I was a boy, you know. And I have to say that I grew up in a dysfunctional family, too. You know, I had a father that was an alcoholic. And uh, later on, when my mother passed away, he remarried again within about uh, 10 uh, months of, her, his, her, uh, of my mother's death. And it, it was to a woman that he knew from Alcoholics Anonymous. And one of the things they tell you is uh, you shouldn't marry a fellow alcoholic because then you've got double trouble. So she claimed that she, you know, his new wife claimed that she had uh, uh, seven years of sobriety. Well, maybe she did, but you know what? Uh, she, did, she had sobriety from alcohol maybe, but it turned out that she was hooked on pills. And that's when the dysfunctionality in that fa my family really began. And I wound up in the Air Force, you know, trying to get away from that, uh, you know, that 
disruptive uh, home life. Now, it may come as a surprise to many that Jesus' family tree was not the most perfect one in the world either. In fact, it was rather a twisted family tree. But then again, that's probably true of all of us, if we're honest. You know, uh, some of us are come from more dysfunctional families than others. Now, the first thing you notice about Jesus' family tree, as recorded in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 16, is that it included women being mentioned in it. Now, the... This was most unusual for a Jewish genealogy to include women in it. Usually only men are mentioned. Women were regarded as uh, not really that important. So today I just want to begin this study on Jesus' family tree with uh, mentioning the women that are mentioned in that genealogy that I just read. Now, there are five women that are mentioned in those verses. Uh, uh, you know, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, and then also uh, chapters 15 and 16 of the same chapter. Those five women that are mentioned are Tamar in verse 3, Rahab and Ruth in verse 5, uh, Bathsheba in verse 6, and finally Mary as uh, who was espoused to Jesus, uh, espoused to Joseph, I'm sorry, uh, at the uh, time of uh, the birth of Jesus. She was still a virgin at Jesus' birth. Three of these women were noted for having committed sexual immorality, so you don't have to be perfect in that regard either. Tamar is the first one, and she committed adultery with Judah, who was her father-in-law at the time. And I'm not going to go into detail about that. If you want to read the story, the whole sordid story, it's found in Genesis chapter uh, 38. Second woman is Rahab. Now, uh, in all probability, this is Rahab the harlot, so she was definitely guilty of immorality, that is spoken of in Judges chapters uh, 2 and 6. Uh, the story goes, you can read those uh, on, at your leisure also, but she hid the two spies that Joshua, the uh, captain of uh, Israel's army, had sent out. And uh, she protected them, she hid them, and uh, later sent them on uh, their way. So she expressed faith in the God of Israel, who she regarded to be the true and living God, based upon the works, the miracles that he had wrought. And everybody knew the story about the twelve or the ten uh, plagues of uh, uh, Egypt, and also the parting of the Red Sea, and... Uh, uh, you know, they fully expected, uh, she fully expected uh, Israel's armies to somehow overwhelm the ones in her home uh, city of Jericho, even though it was protected by these uh, walls, uh, its walls. Now, uh, what's significant about her hiding the spies is what she did led her to be mentioned in the great hall of faith chapter which is uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and that ver uh, uh, verse is devoted to her Hebrews 11:31, and she was also cited by James the apostle as an example of those whose faith uh, was made complete by their works that's in Gen James chapter 2, verse 25. The third woman is Ruth, who was a Moabitess. That means she came from Moab. And as such, she was rain, uh, raised in a pagan culture. And although she wound up marrying two different Jewish men, you know, her first uh, uh, husband was killed before she left Moab, but then she went with her uh, mother-in-law, Naomi, and they came to uh, the nation of uh, Judea, and uh, she married another uh, man named Boaz, and the two of them find the, found their way into the genealogy. 
And a lesson for that is even if you've kind of got a pagan background. You know, Dolly, you know, was raised there in Thailand. She didn't become a Christian until her mid-twenties. But, you know, uh, and she was just surrounded by the Buddhism, the idols, and the uh, monks, and the temples, and things like that. But she still became a Christian. And, uh, you know, she loves the Lord Jesus Christ with all of her heart. So even if you come from a pagan background, you know, you can still become a Christian and uh, uh, be used by God. The fourth woman that's mentioned in uh, the genealogy is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, um, Bathsheba is not even mentioned by name, but you see this in verse uh, 6, where it talks about in Jesus' genealogy, there was David, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Now, usually when you think of King David, you think of uh, David and Goliath. And you think of David eventually becoming king, King David. But there's uh, also the story uh, of uh, David and Bathsheba. And for those of you that have not heard the story, David uh, uh, saw a woman that he wanted and he invited her into his bed while Uriah the Hittite, her husband, was out fighting, fighting the Ammonites. And you find this story also in uh, first Samuel, or, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 11. And she turned up pregnant, so he tried to cover up, the, David tried to cover up the sin by calling his, her husband Uriah to Jerusalem. And he expected her, him to sleep with her. And then everybody would think that the child that was eventually born would be uh, Uriah's. But that wasn't the case. And Uriah refused to uh, sleep with his wife during that time. So David decided, went to plan B and he decided to have Uriah killed. And so he had Uriah uh, put at the, you know, he left a message for Uriah to be put on the front lines and then for the army to withdraw and he would, and he was killed. And then after he was killed, then, you know, David took Bathsheba, his wife, but the Lord knew what had happened and probably most everybody else knew too. And the Lord was not pleased. And so a judgment was declared upon David and his family. And it was fulfilled right to the letter. But my point is, it's not just David committing adultery with Bathsheba. She also committed adultery with him. So both of them were equally guilty under the Jewish law. Now, their son Solomon was not the only one to find uh, his name into uh, Jesus' genealogy. There's also Nathan. If you read the parallel, see, there's a parallel uh, uh, genealogy of D David. It's found in uh, Luke chapter uh, 3, uh, the last half of the uh, chapter. Sorry, I'm a slide behind here. Okay, uh, <clears throat> there's also Nathan. You see, that, that's where the uh, difference between the two genealogies, the one in Matthew chapter 1 and uh, Luke chapter 3, they deviate with the person that uh, proceeded from uh, 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 David. There is Solomon and also Nathan. Now, you know, I wanted to kind of a little do a little research on this Nathan because I didn't know too much about him and I found out that he is mentioned in 1 Chronicles chapter 3 verse 5. It seems that David, uh, Bathsheba bore uh, four sons to uh, David and there's also Nathan in there. So um, the, the reason for the difference between those two genealogies, the one in Matthew and the one in Luke, is uh, that one is Joseph's genealogy, 
the one from through Solomon, so the, that's the kingly line. And then there's also Mary's genealogy through Nathan. Now, the final thing about David here that I want to uh, mention is the fact that the, David, the uh, Messiah, was to come through the line of David. So you had the Messiah. Actually, you know, the, the, you know, the very first Christmas verse is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, about the, the story that, you know, God was going to send mankind a deliverer. You know, this is right after the fall of man. Okay, so mankind is lost because, you know, the sin passed from Adam to every single one of us. But God was not asleep at the, the wheel at the time. He fully knew what was going to happen, you know, that Adam and Eve were going to sin and uh, that sin is going to be passed upon every one of us. And we need a deliverer. That was the whole purpose of Jesus' birth. Amen? Amen? Jesus was literally born so that he could die for the sins of the world. Now, he did a lot of other things, of course, during his earthly life, you know, giving us his teachings, showing us what God was like. But his central mission in life was there to go to the cross. So, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is really the very first Christmas verse that you uh, read about. And later, this messianic line, you know, went from Adam and then through uh, uh, Shem and through Noah and eventually goes through Abraham. I've talked a lot about uh, what uh, the thing about Abraham. Amen? And then eventually it would go through Judah you know, it says in Genesis chapter uh, uh, 49, verse 10, that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh appears. Shiloh is the uh, another way of this uh, talking about the Messiah. And then finally, David was called um, as the uh, man through whom the messianic line would uh, would occur, and that's found in Second Samuel chapter seven. And you know, I was thinking as I was uh, meditating on these things. You talk about dysfunctional families. You know, we think of the uh, three patriarchs. Who are the three patriarchs? You know, you go to Zion National Park there and they have the court of the patriarchs. And they've named these three, you know, tall buttes out there right after the three patriarchs. That is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now these guys actually had dysfunctional families. What about Abraham? You know, Abraham marries, in addition to Sarah, his first wife, he marries Hagar, through whom came uh, Ishmael. As I mentioned before, Ishmael was a child of the flesh. But Isaac, you know, who came along later of his first wife, was the child of the promise. But there was dysfunction in that family. You know, uh, uh, you know, Hagar and uh, Sarah were fighting. And later on, Ishmael and Isaac, at least uh, one-sided there, Ishmael was teasing uh, Isaac. And uh, that led uh, Sarah to demand that both Hagar and Ishmael get kicked out, which happened. Then later on, you had Isaac. Was there dysfunction in Isaac's family? Yes, there was. Because there was favoritism. Isaac favored Esau because Esau would go out and hunt this game and bring back the game and then uh, cook up uh, some uh, nice stew that uh, uh, Isaac liked. Whereas, you know, uh, uh, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, favored Jacob. And Jacob, instead of being a man's man like Esau was, you know, uh, Jacob was kind of the ultimate mama's boy. He stayed in the tents and things like that, didn't get out that much. And, of course, you know, because, you know, you got a conflict right there. You know, Rebecca favors uh, <clears throat> Jacob and, uh, you know, Isaac 
favors Esau. So you had dysfunction there too. And then you got Jacob. You know, the line went through Jacob. And Jacob, you know, really had a very dysfunctional family because he got four wives and there was continual infighting between them. And then there was infighting between the uh, children too. Because Jacob favored uh, uh, Joseph, who was the child of his beloved uh, Rachel. And, of course, that uh, made the rest of the brothers all jealous. So, another dysfunctional family. But, to me, the ultimate dysfunctional family occurs with David. David had a propensity for marrying wives and concubines too and many children result and he was you know just spread way too thin he couldn't give any of the children uh, the attention that they really needed and so that was kind of the ultimate dysfunctional family in fact one of them uh, rose up against him uh, Absalom you know and this was part of the fulfillment of God's judgment for his uh, uh, David's adultery and uh, with uh, Bathsheba and having her husband killed so you know you really delve down into this you know where the uh, bible deals with these people you know the three patriarchs Abraham Isaac and uh, Jacob and uh, also uh, also David you know when you get into the really nitty gritty you can see nothing but dysfunction so don't get the idea that Jesus parentage was perfect because it was by no means uh, perfect okay final woman in that genealogy that's mentioned is Mary now Mary lived in a town called Nazareth which was a common stopping up point for Roman soldiers in their travels. And probably many Jewish uh, women serviced these Roman soldiers there. So Nazareth did not have a very good reputation. In fact, you read about, uh, you know, when Jesus is calling his first disciples, one of them was a man by the name of uh, uh, Nathaniel. And... Uh, uh, Nathaniel asked, well, who's this Messiah that you said that you're following here? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And the first thing that uh, Nathaniel pops off with, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And it's because, you know, Nazareth had this suspect uh, reputation. Now, one of the things about Nazareth is many people uh, traveled through Nazareth, but not many people traveled to Nazareth. You know, it's kind of like Mesquite, right? You're on your way to Las Vegas or, you know, further south. You know, when Dolly and I go down south to uh, uh, San Diego, you know, we usually stop over in uh, uh, Mesquite, maybe get a, you know, we get some gas or maybe a bite to eat or something like that, but we don't travel to Mesquite. So that's the way Nazareth was, you know, you know, many people passed through it. Not too many people uh, traveled to it. Now, because of uh, Nazareth's reputation, the story circulated about, you know, the fact that these uh, Roman soldiers would uh, uh, be serviced by Jewish women. Uh, the story circulated about Jesus being the offspring of Mary and a Roman soldier. You know, when the devil cooks up a lie, he always cooks up, it seems like, uh, the worst lie possible, you know, that they can think of. You know, and this, this story, you know, this uh, uh, tall tale, even found, finds its way into the Jewish Talmud today. And there's places in the uh, New Testament, specifically Jesus' uh, dialogue with the... Uh, with the uh, Jewish religious leaders found in John chapter 8. Towards the end, they, uh, uh, they said we were not, they said to Jesus, we were not born of fornication. We have one uh, God, uh, one Father, even God. So 
they, you know, they were losing the argument at that time, so they started slinging mud about this, you know, idea that Jesus was the offspring of the uh, Roman soldier in Mary. And then later on, in verse, this, that was ver, verse 41, if you want to read it. And then later on in verse 48, they called him a Samaritan. What was a Samaritan? A Samaritan was a half-breed Jew. Now, according to uh, Greg Laurie in that message I was talking to you about, Mary was an unknown girl living in an unknown place, but brought about the most known event in human history. And that is, of course, the Christmas story, the story of the birth of the Christ child in Bethlehem. And we celebrate that every Christmas. Now, it's, the Christmas story really began before that. It began with the angel Gabriel announcing Mary was chosen to bear the Christ child. And you read about that in Luke chapter uh, 1, verses 21 through 38. I don't have time to read it, but make a note of it. Uh, she was chosen to bear the Christ child. So God personally selected Mary himself for, a, a, you know, and he had to have selected it. He, he had, she had to be handpicked by God himself. So she had to be a very special woman, a virtuous woman, because it was not just burying the Christ child. It was also the matter of raising him. Mary, again, Greg Laurie, Mary was an ordinary girl chosen by God, but she was not immaculately conceived. How many of you heard that? That's what the uh, Roman Catholic Church believes. Incidentally, uh, you know, they didn't believe that actually until the middle of the 19th century. You know, it was scarcely 150 years ago that that finally became uh, part of their doctrine. Because she was, they, they believed that she was immaculately conceived, she was also sinless in addition to the Lord. But we know that this is not true. Because right after it talks about the Annunciation of Gabriel to Mary, she goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth, who also you know, had a, uh, a miraculous conception. You know, she was past the childbearing, normal childbearing days, but uh, she conceived, and who was her offspring? John the Baptist. Okay, so she goes to visit Elizabeth, no doubt to get encouragement. You know, she was up in years, she was an older woman. In fact, I'm going to talk about that, the role of old in the uh, church. She, you know, received a lot of advice. They stayed together for uh, uh, three months. But, uh, you know, Elizabeth encouraged her. In fact, when Mary first came to the threshold there, uh, what had happened? You know, Elizabeth says, uh, you know, she says, The child within me, John the Baptist, leaped in my womb, you know, at the sound of your uh, greeting. So... Uh, uh, Mary undoubtedly got a lot of encouragement from Elizabeth. And she gave her song of praise. It's called the Magnificant. It's found in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. And you know the way that she begins that Magnificant? She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. She couldn't be sinless, right? If she was sinless, she wouldn't need a Savior. Okay? So that indicates that she needed a Savior, so therefore she was not sinless and she was not miraculously, you know, immaculately conceived. Now, Mary's husband, Joseph, is the unsung hero of this time, you know, of this story. The Christmas story. You hear almost nothing of him after the Christmas story. The only other place that you find him mentioned in Scripture is when it talks about him being, you know, the, 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 the that Mary and Joseph were 
Jesus' parents, you know, the episode where they went to the temple, went back home, you know, after the uh, worship time, and Jesus stayed behind, and they had to go looking for him. That's the only time that you also uh, read about uh, Joseph uh, uh, in, you know, mentioned in Scripture. So, somewhere between the time that Jesus was 12 and the time, you know, when he was 33 and went to the cross, he must have died during that time period. Incidentally, those of you that came early might have uh, noticed, uh, you know, I played for you Joseph's song about the, you know, uh, things that uh, Joseph must have uh, felt. Joseph was handpicked by God to be the father figure in Jesus' life, just as Mary was. And when Mary turned up pregnant, as it says in Isaiah 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 14, you know, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. But Joseph must have really felt uh, uh, consternate. You know, you can imagine, imagine his consternation. That's what that song is all about. What, the way that Joseph must have felt when he found out that uh, Mary was pregnant. And I can just see this now. You know, uh, Mary comes to uh, Joseph and says, "Even though we haven't had uh, uh, come together, uh, Joseph, I'm pregnant." And guess what? I'm the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Joseph says, right, you know. But it tells us in uh, further in uh, uh, Matthew chapter 1, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from her sins." You know what Jesus means? It means Jehovah is salvation. So right there in his very name, he was looking forward to what Jesus would do for us on the cross. Now by Jewish law, you know, Joseph could have, uh, you know, uh, brushed the angel off and said, nothing doing, I'm going to have her stoned. You know, under Jewish law, uh, he could have had that done. He could have had her stoned. You know, and if he would, had been a prideful man, maybe he would have. But he was a just man and a compassionate man too. Joseph also was a man that God communicated to with, uh, in the form of dreams. Later on, Joseph receives another dream. And you know what that dream was? Jesus had already been born there. Guess what? Guess who was coming after him? Herod. So God communicates to Joseph and said, he, he didn't communicate that to Mary. He communicated it to Joseph as the leader of the home. And he said, Joseph, you better pack up your wife and now your uh, stepson, you know, the baby Jesus, and go to Egypt because they are seeking to kill him. And then finally, you know, God communicates after Herod had died, you know, God communicated to him to another, in another dream and says, oh, it's okay to go back because those who sought the child's love, life have, uh, uh, <clears throat> are dead. So the conclusions on Jesus' twisted family tree. Probably when we go back to our own family history, we would see the same result. We all have dysfunctional families in our family uh, tree, dysfunctional people, because we are flawed and imperfect people. Amen? And this should in no wise stop us from accomplishing things for God. Again, Greg Laurie says, God uses nobodies to become somebodies in his kingdom. 
Somebody who he can use to tell the world about Jesus. Now, Mary and Joseph were kind of one-off deals. There will never be another Mary and Joseph because they accomplished what they needed to do in life, which to, was to bear and raise the Christ child. But the, at the same time, there's never going to be another you either. Amen? You are a unique person. And God has a special plan for your life also. There's nobody that's unimportant to God in this uh, room here today. You know, you, can, you may think you're a nobody, but you can become a somebody for God. God has a special plan for your life. And your task in life is to discover what it is and then begin to execute it. And it's never too late to start. You know, Abraham was how old when uh, Isaac was born? A hundred years old. His mission in life at that point was not only to father Isaac, but also to do what? To raise him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. How old was Moses when his uh, God planned for his, his life? How old was he when that began? Well, he was 80, wasn't he? Remember, he tried to force the issue. He must, God must have been communicating with his spirit that he was calling him to deliver Israel, even at age 40. But he tried to force the issue, just like Abraham did with, uh, uh, when Ishmael was born. He tried to force the issue. And he wound up, wound up killing the Egyptian and then being cast out of Egypt to raise sheep on the backside of the desert. And he was out there for another 40 years before God finally called him to go back to uh, Egypt and deliver the Israelite people. So God, no matter how old you are, God can use your life experience as a preparation for what he has for you. Now, what do we learn from this? First of all, God's grace is on full display through Jesus' ancestors. Therefore, focus on it. God's grace, that is, rather than the sins of your fathers. Indeed, God chose them in spite of their, all of their shortcomings, that is, uh, the shortcomings of Jesus' ancestors, because of his kindness toward them. Another thing, too, to think about, who did God announce the birth of his son to? Did he announce it to Caesar, the leader of the known world at the time? Did he announce it to Herod? You know, he announced it to Herod. And Herod, Herod, you know, what happened when Herod found out about it? Herod wanted to go out and kill all of the baby boys there in Bethlehem. What about the religious leaders of Jerusalem? Did he announce to them? No. Who did he announce it to? Instead, he chose shepherds, right? You know, shepherds, the profession of shepherd was considered to be just about the lowliest profession you could have, you know, in their culture. You know, I kind of wonder why that was, because who was a shepherd in Israel's past? Well, it was David, right? David was a shepherd. What about Moses? The two greatest leaders in the Old Testament, David and Moses, were shepherds. So, I sometimes wonder the mentality of this uh, culture. The other group of people that he announced it to were the, the wise men. And these wise men came from the earth. Uh, I'm from the earth. Well, of course I came from the earth. They came from the east. And they were astronomers and astrologers. So if they were astrologers, and by the way, uh, 
don't read your horoscope. You know, that profession of astrology is strictly forbidden uh, by God in Isaiah chapter uh, 47. Not only, you know, astrology, but all these other forms of the occult too. Tarot cards, crystal balls, you know, uh, uh, Ouija boards and the whole nine yards. Stay away from that because what you're really doing is communing with evil spirits. So they were astrologers, but God even used them. They must have known something about the Jews because they came seeking who? The king of the Jews. So they must have known a little bit about the Jews, but they didn't know enough to know where the king of the Jews was to be born, which was Bethlehem. They found that out when they went there to visit Herod. Said, where is he that is to be born the king of the Jews? And they asked, you know, Herod that, and he's getting all excited and everything. What do you mean the king of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews. So he goes and consults with the religious leaders, and they went to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which said that the uh, king of the Jews, you know, the leader of Israel, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. And by the way, you know, after the uh, uh, religious leaders passed on that bit of information to the wise men and to Herod, you know, why didn't they go looking for the king of the Jews either? You know, it might be that they didn't take the uh, uh, those wise men seriously. But, you know, Herod definitely took them seriously. And he said, you know, uh, when you find him, let me know so I can go worship him. You know, of course, he was, you know, wanting to kill the king of the Jews because he thought he was the king of the Jews. So God communicated it to the shepherds and the wise men, but not to the real uh, leaders, the people that you would consider leaders at the time. Second of all, the meaning of Jesus' per imperfect family is we have this imperfect genealogy laid out before us so that we will place our attention on Jesus rather than his uh, pedigree. You know, just because you come from an imperfect family doesn't mean that God cannot use you. In you know, another way to put it is Jesus was perfect, his family was not. So don't think that you need to have this tremendous family pedigree for God to use you. And another lesson, too, that I wanted to pass off to you, don't go around looking for a perfect church. Okay? If you ever find a perfect church, whatever you do, don't join it. Because once you join it, it won't be perfect anymore. Amen? I mean, you know, I'm preaching the truth here. You know, one of the primary excuses that people give for not attending church is they'll say, oh, the church has too many hypocrites. There's too many hypocrites there. Or they're too strict. Yeah. Well, they, they, they can be too strict. But, you know, they say, well, there's hypocrites in the church. Sure, there's hypocrites in the church. But you know what I always say? I say, if you let the hypocrite stand between you and God, who's closer to God? Amen? The hypocrite is closer to uh, uh, God than you are if you're letting him stand between you and God. And the third and final meaning of Jesus' imperfect family is we have this genealogy so that we may have hope for our future and for the future of our families. Jesus can intervene in your story if you let him. And you let him become Lord of your life. So, what state is your family in now? You know, and what role, just as important is, what role are you playing in leading them to Christ now? You know, almost every social ill is caused by dysfunction in the home. Amen? And 
a major factor in dysfunction in the home is with absentee fathers. You know, we need more men these days to stand up and be bold, to be brave, and to lead their family families in the ways of the Lord. It doesn't necessarily mean that you pound on the table, you know, and say, I'm going to lay down the law of the land. I'm, gonna, I'm king of this household. Doesn't mean you do that. You also have to be tender-hearted too. And that means part of manning up means you have the courage to admit when you are wrong. If you're a man here, do you ever apologize to your family if uh, you do something that turns out not to be the correct way? You apologize to your family when you hurt them. And believe me, you know, I hurt my family many times when I was raising up uh, my, uh, my family. So fathers, learn from your mistakes. And you make it right, and then you start over again from scratch if necessary. But it's not just the men. Ladies, too. You're married to a uh, husband that refuses to take his position as the priest of the home. And, you know, if your husband doesn't take his place as the priest of the home, then you have to pick up the slack and you've got to uh, uh, do that role. You know, your children, ladies, your children need spiritual development. So you read to them the Bible daily and make sure that they get to church and Bible study as often as possible. You know, one of the problems with women, as they get older, they find that their beauty diminishes. And they begin to think that there's really nothing more that they can do. But that's not true at all. And Paul tells us in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, he writes... The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanders, teachers of good things, that they admonish, that they admonish the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. If you ask me, that's quite a bit of uh, things that you can do as an older woman. So it just didn't stop when you lost your youth and you lost your so-called beauty. And I'm saying that sarcastically because everybody is beautiful. You know, I tell Dolly every day that she's beautiful. And beautiful is not just physical appearance. Beauty is the hidden person of the heart. Amen. Amen? So every one of you ladies, you can be a beautiful, even if you lose your physical beauty, you can be a beautiful person in your heart. And that's what God wants you to, to be. As an older, mature woman... You have so much to say to younger women. And you can especially give yourself to prayer, you know, for your family and for others too. You know, I've been talking about everybody has the ministry of intercession. I've harped on this a lot. You have the, you know, uh, ministry of intercession. And our nation needs it now more than ever. Amen? Especially when you get older, you know, you reach retirement age, you have more time to do that very thing, to go into the prayer closet. Young people, you need also to pay heed to this. You know, I think that there's not a time, you know, ever in the human history where it's harder to be a young person. 
And I'm kind of glad that I'm not a young person these days because of all the choices that are out there. You know, you graduate from high school, you want to go off to college, prepare yourself. What's in the colleges? All this Marxist and atheist, atheistic garbage that they are teaching these days at the, uh, you know, colleges. You graduate from college and you're dumber than when you first entered it. How I many of you know what I mean? Amen? And the call of the world is never stronger. And in this day and age, it is more important for a young person to know, to be able to hear the voice of God leading him or her and guiding him or her. So if you're a young person, you need to be seeking God and asking God for that direction. And also pray that when he gives you that direction, you will have the strength to follow through with it. But even if you've made a mess out of your life, God can turn that around. He can turn your mess uh, around your mess and make it a message to the rest of the world. Okay, almost finished here. Final thoughts on Jesus' family tree. We all have imperfect families. And if we're not careful, those imperfections can be passed on to us. And this can lead to what's known as generational curses. And it comes from the fact that there are malevolent spirits behind these different sins. And I talked about that when I was giving gave you that series message of messages on the uh, uh, return of the gods. How the gods uh, that Israel faced are the same ones that we are facing today. They may have been, kind of been temporarily banished with our Judeo-Christian ethic, but we're losing that now, and so those gods are returning. Good example of, uh, you know, generational curse. What happened to Solomon? Solomon had uh, how many wives? He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Where did he learn that from? From his father David. David had a preoccupation with sex. That's why he got all of these wives and concubines and bore all of these children that he could not control. That got passed on to Solomon. And that led to Israel's downfall. Led to the splitting up of Israel into two kingdoms, Samaria and uh, Judah. It's an example of a generational curse. You know, my father had alcoholism, uh, sin of alcoholism, and he got it for bo both his, his parents, and he passed that on to me, too. Thank God I've been uh, sober now for 18 years. So you can break that generational curse. You can do it. But you're going to need God's help. And you need to seek God about it. We have little tried expressions, you know, about these generational curses. Like father, like son. You heard that? I'm sure many times. Or oh, what about, you know, the apple don't fall too far from the tree. But you can break these generational curses through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He not only went to the cross to pay for your sins, but also to break the power over you. Remember weeds. You know, I've talked to you about weeds before. One thing I've learned about uh, weed control that I've been doing, you know, in the uh, church grounds here, is the best time to get the weeds is before they mature. Get them while the roots are still shallow. Get them before they go to seed. You've got to nip those sins in your life in the, the bud before they go to seed and you start passing them on 
to your posterity. You know, your children and your grandchildren. Take care of things early in your life. But again, it's never too late to get that uh, uh, taken care of. Instead, begin to lay down godly roots. You lay those down through prayer, through teaching God's word to your children, and then watering it so those roots will run deep, not only in yourself, but also in your children. And that's the way to overcome an imperfect family. Hallelujah. Okay, I'm finished. You know, I haven't preached that much on Christmas today, though I have touched on it. But I hope that this message has been profitable for you. Yes.